Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you another wonderful woman in STEM. Her name is Jennifer Bonin, and she is the CEO of AI App Store, Inc., and was the first female artificial intelligence testing tech CEO. Love highlighting women in STEM, and I'm so happy to have you with us here today, Jennifer. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. So tell us a little bit more about, first of all, sort of what was your journey coming into AI? Because I think that this is something that, you know, well, for one, we want to know a little bit more about you and why you're interested in AI, but what was your journey coming there into AI? Yeah. No, for me, I started really young um, as an entrepreneur. So I always was extremely curious about the world and how things worked and solving problems, really. And that's how my entrepreneurial journey started for me at about five was around, I saw a challenge and a problem and I wanted to solve it. And at that time, I didn't have access to technology. So as I progressed through college, my career, I actually ended up with Accenture. And the reason I started with them, my thought process was I'm young enough that I don't know what industries I like or don't like. I don't know what corporate cultures I'll like or not like. So it was a very conscious decision, actually, to go to Accenture and consulting as my first job out of college because I could explore. And I wasn't your traditional technologist in that I didn't have a computer science undergrad degree. I had actually done international business. I wanted to work at the United Nations. I thought I would be overseas. But then when I went to Accenture, I went to what they used to call St. Charles and they sent you off. It was like college 2.0 and you would go to St. Charles and they taught me COBOL coding. And so I learned how to code in COBOL, which I hadn't done in college over the course of a month and realized I wasn't exactly the best coder, but that I could do it, right? And it taught me that I could do it. And it taught me that curiosity of how do I use technology and code to solve problems? So throughout my career, I ended up running technology teams and using technology to help solve problems. So the natural evolution for me My last stop before creating my own organization and company with my two co-founders was Oracle. And when I was at Oracle, it was big tech and we were leveraging lots of different technologies, big data, all kinds of cutting edge strategies at that time that I was working on. And I saw AI, it's been around for a while and machine learning we've had for a while, but was starting to gain momentum. And I saw the power of this massive ability to compute And it was becoming more and more accessible to more humans. And I really saw it as being more dynamic than static code that we've been using previously to solve some of these big problems in the world. So that's kind of how I started to get into that as the best technique I saw out there currently to solve problems. And the key for me was instead of people just solving it with tech, I wanted to solve it with empathy and humans at the core 
of solving with technology, not replacing human beings. And so I decided that to do that, I probably had to create a culture that that was at the forefront in a company where we lived and breathed that mindset. So that's how I got there. I love that. And I think that, I mean, we talk about that a lot on this show and the importance of really having tech humanists, people that understand the power of technology to enhance the human experience rather than becoming it. And, you know, when you're looking at, it's interesting because I do think that a lot of women bring that touch into technology. It's see, like you're saying, seeing a problem, seeing how technology can be a solution, but bringing that human factor in so that it doesn't become the disrupt, but it becomes the solution. So I'm curious because with your background, when you came into consulting, before you even came in, you didn't anticipate that you were going to be doing technology. It sounds like somehow they saw your potential and your ability to adapt and to perceive. So maybe coding wasn't your thing, but it gave you that gateway in. Did they do some sort of aptitude tests for you in order for that to come out? Or was that more like, this is a need, everybody's got to do it right now? Yeah, no, it was. They're very good. One thing Accenture got really well back when they were doing this, and I've, I, do, I think it's changed a little bit, but they really had the mindset of if we hire critical thinkers. I think all the, they really had the idea of what I see as all the critical skills for all of us now, as we adapt to more machine learning and AI technologies that we all need. Problem solving, critical thinking, you know, the capability to use contextualized intelligence and relevance in the world. So they really looked for aptitude in those areas. And they believed that as long as you had those core skills, they could teach you new technologies, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you had good contextual intelligence, if you had good problem solving, you may not know how to code in COBOL. And the reason they specifically used COBOL, even though that wasn't the predominant coding language at the time, was they believed that it was one of the hardest languages to learn. So if they could teach you COBOL, then you could adapt and adjust to the other languages that existed that were much easier to pick up. Kind of like the idea, even with learning a second language, if English is your first language, if I teach you a certain language, you'll pick up three or four others because they're relatively similar, but I have to teach you one that's a harder one, and then you'll pick those others up along the way. So that was the idea for them was we can teach you coding and it's going to evolve. They even knew then, right? Like we see today, new technology comes out every day. So it's about being adaptable and learning how to apply the basics of what it is in a technology to another language or skill, right? Mm-hmm. But using those basics you learn. So they taught us the fundamentals. But yeah, I if you would have told me that's where I would end up and I would be coding in COBOL and I would know how to code in COBOL, I would have said, you're crazy. <laughs> I didn't sure. think that was going to happen, but I had a natural aptitude for it and they were good at picking up on that. That's great. So I want to take a little bit of a, a turn here because when we're talking about AI, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what AI is and also there's fear around it. When when you don't know, it just sounds kind of like, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey type thing <laughs> where we're all worrying about how. But can you give a little bit sort of, you know, the dumb version of 
Yeah. You know, yeah. what what is AI and what kind when you talk about AI, what exactly is that that you're talking about and how do you use it? Yeah. And so that I do this a lot. So one of the core tenets of what we do every day is education. Like we want people to be informed. I call them conscious consumers. Like we're at a stage in the world where I don't care who you are, you should have a basic understanding of how algorithms, how artificial intelligence and machine learning are being used in your everyday life that you don't realize today. Because it is being used, whether we know it or not, or we're informed or not, it's happening. And our data as consumers is being leveraged and used by a lot of companies. Um, Not to scare people, but I say, if the product is free, so you think of all the social platforms you all use, if it's free, you are the product. You are what they are monetizing. They're monetizing your usage, your data, what they show you, what you look at. You are the research for them. You are all of that data. So artificial intelligence, very simply, is actually just the idea of non-human intelligence. So when we say artificial, it just means it's not you and I as human beings that are exhibiting some level of intelligence. It's a non-human intelligence. So we can start with that. And there's different types of artificial intelligence. There's the kind that you see that's in the movies where it's these fully functioning, humanistic looking robots that we see. I actually saw one. It was kind of funny. I don't know if everyone's had seen it last tax season in 2019 when they were doing tax preparation. It was a bot. It was a robot that looked fairly human-like, but it was a robot but they had covered it so it looked like it had skin and it looked like all of us. But then when you asked it questions like, what did you want to be when you grew up? It didn't know, right? Because it doesn't have that human capability, right? Did you always know you wanted to be an accountant when you grew up was the question (laughs) they asked and the bot was totally stumped. But that's a different kind of AI. That's, you know, a more complex AI. What mostly is used today for all of us is much simpler single function. AI. So they're just math at the end of the day. So underlying this intelligence that's demonstrated not by humans, but by machines is really math, data, and algorithms. So machine learning is really just a fancy word for math and algorithms. So it's math behind the covers of what it's doing is it's taking lots of data and mass amounts of information, and it's getting patterns out of that information and data. Just like you and I get patterns when we do things, we learn over time, right? We teach children how to say words. We teach children what the color red means. This is what we do with agents. They call them agents. I like to call them bots. It seems more personal, the non-official term. So I'll call them bots because they seem more real to me. (laughs) But the bots are just learning the same way, a child, a puppy, anything we're training. And we train it on sets of data. And those sets of data are like what you're giving every day when you engage on a social platform. They're looking at, you know, we've all seen those tests they give you that say, you know, what did you look like 10 years ago and what do you look like now? It's just training on that data of your face and how do humans age and what is the pattern in that? And bots can process hundreds of thousands and millions of records of data Whereas we as humans maybe only get a thousand that we can figure out before our brain starts to have issues. But that's what I think 
machine learning and AI is really good at is seeing patterns in mass volumes of data that's out there that it can put some context into, which is why I think we actually see now vaccines or potential treatments for the current pandemic coming faster because we can use all this machine learning or just algorithms to correlate all this worldwide data we're getting much quicker than individual scientists could look at their piece of data and make a determination. So there are some very positive uses for it, but I would say it's being used a lot and people don't tell you they're using it, right? It's why we all on our phones, when we start talking about something, all of a sudden ads start popping up for that thing that you were talking about. You know, our televisions have it built into them. Our phones have it built into them. All of the voice activated technology has it built into it. The social platforms have it built into it. They've been using it for a long time. How do you think certain buying tools online know exactly what to recommend to you for products? They're looking at your buying history, right? So all of it's already there. Hopefully that was a more simple explanation. Well, no, I I think it's it's very helpful. But I think that for me, I've always lived by the philosophy that we are moving more towards the anomaly as the norm. And how does that impact your data when you're talking about, you know, when you're looking for patterns and then, you know, humans are basically a pattern disrupt because they're not all the same. And so, you know, when you put them all in the same bucket, yes, I mean, you can match sort of groups that are similar, but there's always going to be that pattern disrupt and that anomaly. How do you handle that within AI? Well, it's really interesting. So us as humans have what I like to think of as conscious and unconscious bias naturally, right? So when I say conscious bias, it's the things I know. Like I know that I prefer living not in a big city. I like to be outside of town where I have room and space. That's conscious, right? I know that. Then things we don't think about, about unconscious biases of you know what? I don't like to drive. I don't think about every day, but if I'm going to lunch, I want to go somewhere that's within 15 mile radius because I don't want to drive more than 30 minutes to get lunch or whatever. That's the unconscious that exists. And we all have these both conscious and unconscious biases about all kinds of things in our life. And data has that as well because it's based on past patterns. And to your point, there may be a past pattern that we don't want to replicate right? Where it's a pattern we don't want to see again. And so what we have to be very careful of, and this is where humans come into play with artificial intelligence and machine learning, is we as humans have to say, I get what the pattern says, but we're consciously changing or want to rework that pattern and have a different outcome. So that's where humans really come into play to change or alter what we're calling, like you said, the anomaly or the pattern we want to have versus what has been the pattern, right? All it's telling us is that was an actual pattern we had in our life. So as an example, say we're using this in, which they've piloted using it for sentencing guidelines for legal system, where they would go and say, let's look at a hundred thousand cases of petty theft. We'll just call it petty theft cases that had these criteria. They'll throw all that into an algorithm and it'll get a pattern to say, here's the average age of the person that usually commits petty theft. Here's the type of zip code they live in, all this demographic data about the pattern. 
that existed in those 100,000 sets of cases. But now what we as the humans have to do when we get that data and we get someone in front of us and they don't fit the pattern, what we have to say is, should they get that sentence that the AI recommended because that's what they would get according to the pattern? Or are we breaking this pattern and we want a new outcome where Mm -hmm. we actually change the decision-making? And then that's where we start to see new patterns emerging in the data sets. But inherently, just like us, AI is biased. Like it just is. It has a very conscious bias that exists in that data set. Well, for sure. I mean, we see that, you know, one of the most glaring examples that we're seeing right now is political situation where if you're consuming, if you hang out with the same type of people that have the same type of ideals, you're going to get fed more information that sort of confirms that bias. Whereas, Mm -hmm. I mean, I try to, you know, listen to both sides because I'm just trying to understand why do people feel so strongly the other on the other side and to just try to be sort of more conscious about knowing both sides but it's interesting because there's some places where okay then you know i followed a few things on the other side just to try to understand but i'm getting fed that i think i'm just confusing the ai basically yeah um, you've broken the algorithm they're like what is she doing why does she keep going Shoot, look i don't both get sides. it yeah i know i'm the i break stuff all the time because i get how it works and i'm And I don't fit the mold of what they're looking for you to do. So I totally understand breaking the AI. You absolutely (laughs) are breaking their pattern. I love to do that. So tell me a little bit more about what you guys actually do at AI App Store. Yeah, well, we saw needs. So again, I say we've evolved from where we started. So when we originally first came out, we saw this huge problem of overworked folks who had to test all these systems that were coming out. So our original thesis for what we wanted to do was aid people who were testing web and mobile products. So websites and mobile apps, because there's just so much to check right now. And it's so imperative because so much of our data is going into these things. And people are pressured to release them faster and faster. But if it's not right, what you see is your data is compromised. You know, we have numerous examples of companies that didn't do security checks and validation and all of the work that needed to be done before releasing things. And then it impacts the consumer. So we wanted to be conscious of protecting consumers in this and giving mechanisms to companies to still release quickly but with more checking and validation and testing of those things before they went out, using AI combined with humans to do it. So we successfully grew doing that. We started also with video games. So that was a problem that hadn't been cracked before. Not that everyone wants a deep knowledge of how video games work, but because they're built on platforms for gaming specifically, they had to be manually tested. And while that may sound really fun to a lot of you out there who love games and video games, you can only do so many hours of Candy Crush before your mind goes numb. So we wanted to aid those folks in having AI to be able to run through some repetitive tasks so then really the live humans could do the fun stuff of testing the games. So we cracked that nut before the end of 2019 last year, successfully exited and sold that company because we decided at that point we were bigger than just testing. There was a bigger impact we were going to have on the world. And this was pre-COVID. It was right before all of this happened. But what we saw was the combination of creating digital spaces 
for people to connect across the globe. So we build digital real estate. So we literally create anything you see in the physical world, in the digital world. And we connect the two together so that you're able to connect with your peers all across the globe in these digital buildings that we build. And because they're not physical buildings, they're digital, they're, they're based off of physical addresses, you're able to create them in whatever shape you want. You can have as many floors as you want. You can have rooms for collaboration in them. We give people virtual assistance. So your virtual assistant, I'm sure all of you right now are getting fatigue from your Zoom rooms and all the things that you're in. Your digital assistant, if someone knocks on your virtual office door and wants to come in and meet with you, you can say, I'm sorry, she's in a meeting right now. She'll be out at this time. And you can send her to send that message for you. You can ask to have meetings scheduled for you next week with people in your organization. So you don't have to do that. You can tell them you want it to be Teams or Zoom or whatever you medium you want to use. It's completely platform agnostic for folks. And um, we catalog all the meetings that take place in a room. So if you weren't able to attend, you can go back and look at the digital notes. And then we have AI that runs across and does summaries for you of important things. Um, sentiment analysis, it takes and translates um, what would be just email communication into voice communication. So instead of sitting in front of your computer, reading your emails, you can walk and listen to them. You can flag them. Basically layers all the best of what we have available to us in AI technology in a digital space for humans to be at the core and as productive as possible but using the AI to assist it in a virtual world to make it feel more collaborative and more connected than what we are seeing today. Little did we know the whole world would go virtual and, and, and maybe not see each other for a while. But um, even when people go back, it gives more flexibility to, you know what? Hey, I had to take my son or daughter to school. I missed that meeting, but you know what? I pop into that meeting room where the meeting was. I listen to it. I get the highlights. I can listen to it while I drive to get my, my son or daughter from school. And I still feel like I was there and I get information. I can leave a post-it note in the room and say, hey, can someone answer the question on this thing? And I get a response. I so love that. I think, I mean, it, you're, you're really uh, fulfilling a, a very strong need, particularly as you were saying, you know, in the middle of COVID, I won't even say post-COVID because we're not there yet. We've got another no. wave on its way. But I think it, it's fascinating. A lot of the work that I'm doing right now is advising people that are working in the hospitality industry, and they've been hit very, very hard. People aren't physically going for meetings. They're not going for these conferences. And how do we create that touch experience where you are connecting people? But I guess the big challenge that we're all sort of waiting for to be completed is how do we do this without, how do we get that feeling of being in the same space so that there's that, the, the opportunity for serendipitous interactions without having to put a VR headset on, you know, without having to feel like you're in this overly technologically controlled environment. I mean, I'm pro-tech. So I, you know, I'm like, I've been waiting for holograms for years. I'm like, well, I just want my hologram meeting so I can, you know, show up, I can decide, okay, I show up in my pajamas, but I can decide that I just have a business suit on. So however I appear to everybody else, I'm sitting there with my business suit in this hologram simulated environment. I know we're not there yet, but I do think we're close. And I think that there, you know, 
what you're doing is one step closer to that. And, and that's really exciting to me. You know, how far do you think we are from that? And how do you see we are in that progression? Yeah. And that was really important to myself and my co-founders is we wanted to meet people where they are and create connectivity to the last mile as well. We use this platform, actually, we're in the process of putting it in for a not-for-profit organization for youth called Dream Tank, where they go into mission control in this virtual world where they can all interact and engage together to solve problems across the globe. And they're solving things like zero poverty and hunger, and they're doing it globally, and they can do it in what we're building for them. But it was really important for us to build it. When we looked at it, we talked about AR and VR because we're all very tech savvy like you and we love those technologies. But to your point, not everyone, number one, can afford it, right, to have those headsets. Um, second, I, I forget what the study is and you may know the number. We looked at it at one time, but the amount of time a human can actually wear one of the current headsets is not a full day, right? Mm-hmm. You can't live in that headset all day. And there, frankly, are still people who get motion sickness or it upsets them, you know, that different um, ways that mentally we operate, like certain people feel claustrophobic in it. They can't do it. Right. So until it's fully accessible, we wanted an accessible platform that was usable, no matter if you're a Microsoft customer, a Google customer, um, no matter what you use for tech, this we wanted something that worked on any phone, any computer, any device that made you feel connected, even if you're in a place where you don't have high bandwidth, you don't have all this stuff. And I think, you know, we want to get there. Like we will get to a place where we do more and more in AR and VR and the new extended reality. There was just an event this last Saturday that we were going to do with XR technology, which is cool. But I think those are the cherries on top where maybe you do that for 10 or 15 minutes. But where we want to live is still more that 2D experience, but I feel connected to you and you feel connected to me and we have more of that. Mm -hmm. So I think it'll be, it'll be a little while yet. And just because of accessibility and, and um, the cost still of technology and just the fatigue of the human, Mm -hmm. uh, it'll take a little bit longer than I think than I think some of the manufacturers of the devices want it to. But I've seen things like glasses that are now coming out. I know we tried um, Google Glass and that wasn't a huge hit, but I think they're iterating on those things and we're gonna see some more that makes it more like eyeglasses for you. But again, I always say with any of these two, what we really wanted to create in these worlds we create, you own your data. Like Mm -hmm. no one has access to it, but you, we're not... We're not using that data to profile, you know, different verticals or industries or companies. It, the product truly is to enable the human mm-hmm. and the humans aren't the product. And so just to be clear on how we built it too. I love that. So, I mean, you talked about one industry, which is the, that nonprofit group that you're, you're uh, we're doing the work with. And I think that's amazing and look forward to seeing more coming from that space. Where do you see this best applied? What, what industries do you think are really best served by the first stage of this progression where we're really utilizing AI more effectively? Well, what's been really kind of fun, so we've had a lot of people approach us because they're struggling, right? There's a lot of industries right now, commercial real estate, some of the co-working spaces. But what we're able to offer to even a co-working space is this virtual, they can offer a virtual component 
to a physical co-working, right? Where now they can add this on top so that if people aren't able to physically be in their co-working space, they have a platform they can offer to their co-working folks that gives them more connectivity than what they had before. It also helps a lot of startups because they don't have the capability. Their office is their home a lot of times, and they don't have the capability to spend thousands of dollars on a physical office. But as long as they have a home address, we can create a a virtual building off that home address for them, and then they can connect in this space. So it's helping a lot in the startup space. Other applications have been uh, health clubs. So right now, not a lot of people want to go into a physical health club, but what the AI can do is we can actually have it watch, like say you're doing class or taking a personal training session, the AI can watch your movements as long as we have a camera and see those movements and tell you a pattern of your squats off, or we have to switch this up, or this is hurting your back, or here's some other activities that your trainer can recommend. So even though they're not physically in the same room with you, they can be giving guidance and assistance with the assistance of our smart assistant AI on top of it to help you actually train better, reduce injury, do a lot of those things for you. Mm-hmm. And then even in the sports space, we're talking right now to the indus- another industry besides hospitality was the music industry, right? With all the concerts, there's no concerts, people can't go to big venues and sporting. So in the, the music venue, what we're talking about is imagine one of the rooms in your virtual concert hall, they can have merchandise, you mm-hmm. can order food from Grubhub. So anything that's in your physical world, we can virtualize for you including dry cleaning, coming to pick up your stuff from your office and bring it back to you. And you do all that through this space. So making it very easy for you to operate and be efficient. So lots of applications. We're just trying to help those right now, most that were hit hardest um, by the pandemic, because we want them to be able to have the tools and technology they need to you know make the appropriate, I know everyone says pivot, but truly it is, I mean, adjust to the normal that we don't know how long this will be. Oh, absolutely. And one of the companies that I do some work with on the on more of the scientific research side, but they're doing a mental health app. And I would think that one of the big challenges, isolation, that and that's causing many different mental health triggers for people, everything from, you know, addiction to depression to you name it. And, you know, there's only so much time that even, even as a, a, uh, an introvert, I like to see people. (laughs) So I think it's a great opportunity to really create a hybrid environment. I really appreciate what you're doing and kudos to you. And I want to make sure as we're we're coming up to our close here, I want to make sure that people can find you if they want to learn more about it. And maybe is there an opportunity for people to be able to test it out? Or how does that work, you know, in terms of if people want to get a better understanding about what it is and how that how it might help them, whether for their business or for maybe for their their team or or their yeah. uh, their community. No, absolutely. Um, yes, there is. And you mentioned introverts, and this is what I think. I I just wanted to touch on this because this was built with all types of humans in mind, and and I think a lot of my co-founders as well as some of our team would be what you consider introverts, where I tend to range on the scale of as a high, high, high extrovert, I had a real tough time being isolated. Like it was real tough. Like I had to figure out ways to still get that extrovert. But what's nice about what we're doing 
is imagine like you can close your door, your, your virtual door and people know your door's closed. So it's not like, you know, when you're in a physical office, you could close your door and just say, I need an hour, right? Like I'm not available to have meetings or to talk to you. It's not that I'm not online. And what happened with all of this was the fear of people thinking, well, I always have to be on or they're going to think I'm, you know, doing laundry or, you know, binging Netflix and I'm supposed to be working. But with this, we allow people to close their door and say, I'm not available right now. I'll be back later, you know, and, and I'm here, but I'm just, I need my downtime, right? I need quiet time. I'm doing a project. I'm sifting through email, but it gives them that comfort of I'll engage when I'm ready. I am here, but I'm not open for engagement right now, which I think is so important to the mental health and well-being of a lot of people right now of they feel this obligation. I don't want to lose my job. I want people to know I'm working, but at the same time, they need their downtime. Yeah. And I wanted to build that in. So I wanted to say that for the introverts, but yes, we allow people to take a look at it and test it. Um, we had spent a lot of time on it and we're just coming out of our stealth mode for people to see it because it was very proprietary how we did it. But um, if they go to aiappstore.com, they'll be able to sign up and say, I want to take a trial and check it out and test it, see how it works for them as an individual or a company or a group. And then my website is jenbonine.com. So you can always ask me anything there. And we take suggestions. We love consumer feedback of what people would want or need We also do a lot of work for social impact. So if you have a group, a lot of not-for-profits are struggling right now too because their donations are down. They've been having a tough go of it, getting engagement. We are working with some of them, as I mentioned, to help boost engagement, even though they can't have physical events with their donors and folks to be able to facilitate that. So we're happy to help in that space too. Fabulous. Well, I definitely have a few that I want to send your way. And I would love to test it out myself. That sounds really interesting. I am so excited about what you're doing. And I so appreciate the effort that you're making to keep tech a little more human and to really, you know, utilize the best of technology in helping us make the world a better place. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for applying your incredible skills to that. Folks, thank you so much, Digital Selfers, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you really enjoyed today's show, always appreciate a rating and review. And don't forget to tell us so that we can send you a little thank you back. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. It was such a joy having you on today. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.